Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming Claire Willis. Claire is a clinical social worker who has worked in the field of oncology and bereavement for over 20 years. She co-founded the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together and recently released the book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. All of us have experienced loss at some point in our lives. And over the last two years, we as a society collectively have experienced a tremendous amount of loss. For today's conversation, I will be joined by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. I will also be dedicating today's episode to my dear friend, Jordan Filler, who is gone far too soon, but the memory of him will always be in our hearts. Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. I believe this conversation around grief and loss is extremely timely, but before we dive into those topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what life was like for you growing up? Well... I'm 75, so I have a lot of time to report on. I was born in New York, and I lived in Scarsdale, New York, for most of my life. Um, If you know anything about the town at all, it's a fairly privileged town, and I think I never really felt at home there, which has really driven a lot of the work I've done since. I was one of four children. Um, I went to college in Ohio at Ohio Wesleyan, and then I went to graduate school in theology, social work, and education. So I have three master's degrees, none of which speak hugely to what I do now, but nevertheless, they're there. Um, I actually found that most of what I've learned, I learned with, uh, walking and in my life. It's not what I've learned in school at all. So when I first got out of college, I realized um, I wanted to be a social worker. I've always been drawn to working with people at the margins, um, which is part of why I never felt quite comfortable in my home. Um, and I started working in housing projects and I was running writing workshops for children who were living in these projects, helping them write about what they were living through the form of teaching them what a novel was. And I loved that work. And then I ended up working with the parents, asked me to create a writing group for them. So I created a writing group for the parents in this project. And one of their husbands (laughs) said to her, you've gotten so ballsy since you started doing this writing workshop. And I thought, yes, you're finding your voice. And so um, anyway, I did that for many years working in the projects and I, I loved that work. Um, and then I went and did the same thing in a high school level. I did it both in elementary and high school. And then um, about 10 years ago, I had, or maybe it was more than that now, maybe 12 years ago, I had a life-threatening illness and or episode encounter, I should say. I had, um, I was playing tennis one day and the person I was playing tennis with said to me, why are you out of breath? And I said, oh, I didn't even realize. And when I got home, I couldn't walk up the steps. And I called the doctor and I said, I think I'm grieving. And she said, you may be grieving, but you need to come to the ER. And so what I learned in that moment was that I had um, blood clots in my lungs and that's very serious. So I was immediately hospitalized. And when I came out of the hospital, uh, I knew that my life was never gonna be the same, that I had come right up to the edge of death and that everything 
felt was going to feel different. I had been working with people with cancer up till that point. And um, I started to want to work more with people who are close to the end of their life. So the first book I picked up after this episode, which was so interesting, was a book called Living Fully, Dying Well. And it was a book, which I had no idea about, was written by a man who had had pulmonary emboli and decided to change his life. And he wanted to work at this edge. And it was, I don't know how I ended up with this book, but I did. And I think it was then I realized that this was the work I wanted to do. Um, in my family, I was always described as being the probe, the one who was too intense, that had too many feelings. And I grew up in a what I would call a flatline family where feelings, it was sort of a waspy family and you don't express your feelings in the wasp culture. I hope this isn't offensive, but at least in the way I was raised, that was, and, and it was funny because all my friends when I was younger were Jewish. <laughs> it was the contrast was very appealing to me. But anyway, I, I would say that grief in my house uh, was prevalent. Um, my parents had both my grandparents had both experienced, my parents, I'm sorry, had both experienced traumatic deaths in their life, suicides. One had a murder in their family and it was never talked about. We'd never talked about it. I learned about these things by accident. And I knew there was something in my family, as much as I loved them, that I wanted to live differently. And so this, this encounter uh, with, with both working with people who have cancer and who really know what's essential. And my own personal encounter with pulmonary emboli really steered my life towards working with people who were on the edge of life and death and bereavement and grief. Um, I read recently a beautiful quote by Jamie Anderson. Um, this is only part of it, but it is that grief is love with no place to go. And I love that because grief is not a popular um, concept in our culture. We don't allow time for grief. You know, when someone loses somebody in their family, you get two or three days off. There's no acknowledging the impact of loss. And what I love about Jamie Anderson's words, which I'm using all the time, is that it reframes grief into something that we should never even try to get over. <laughs> We don't get over loving what we've lost. We carry that love with us. So that's, um, I think that's probably about five minutes about my life. Um, and that's what comes to mind right off the cuff. So how did you get into writing your own books? Well, I, I've written two books. Uh, I, I, one is called Lasting Words, A Guide to Finding Meaning Toward the Close of Life. And that was an attempt to help people um, close their life in a way that they felt they could leave something behind that, 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 that even though their life was ending, they would be remembered through some of the methods and suggestions I have in the book. And then when I started doing more bereavement work, I was answering the same questions all the time. Am I grieving right? I thought I was doing well, and then I had a setback. Um, how am I going to get through this first year? And I thought, I kept saying the same things in all my groups. And I thought, I want to write about this so that I can tell everybody there's no right way to grieve. There are as many different ways to grieve as there are people who are grieving. And so I think the repetitiveness of what I was saying and what I was hearing was how 
people were so oppressed by models of grief and how they should be grieving that I wanted to speak into that. So I think that's what really drove um, the second book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. So Claire, I have a question. Um, When I was 23, I lost a very good friend of mine to an overdose. And at first I was feeling, you know, feelings that grief, but it was almost like selfish grief. Oh, I'm never going to see him again. And we had so much left to talk about and do together. And then as the years progressed, um, you know, every year when the anniversary comes, um, I feel differently. And it's been seven years. And this past January, when it was the anniversary of his passing, I, the day kind of crept up on me. I didn't even realize. And then that day I just lost it. Yeah. It was overflowing of emotion, couldn't stop crying, but I was grieving more the life that he never got to live. Not me selfishly missing him as a friend and a person, but that question of he could have, he died at 23. He died so young. Like what else could there have been? So while we never really lose that, as you said, that love we have for, you know, whoever we have lost, does grief change over time? So first of all, I want to say, I want to say, please don't use the word selfish when you put it next to grief. Um, Of course you missed him. Of course you are grieving for what you didn't have. And I think it's that, it's those words that make us feel less expressive of our grief. So when someone first dies, the pain is searing. It's just searing. And then over time, it diminishes in intensity, frequency, and duration, which I think you actually described. When you burst into tears on the anniversary of his death, you didn't lose it. You got it. The the full Megillah of what happened came crashing down. And I hear that phrase all the time. I lost it. I was walking down the aisle and I saw a can of tuna fish and the person I loved loved tuna and it reminded me and I lost it. And our psyche can't take in the magnitude of these losses fully. We have to titrate them. So grief comes in waves. So when you get a wave of, oh my God, I just, and start sobbing, you're having a moment of getting it because our psyche can't withstand that all the time. It's too much. So we have to go in waves. So think of it as really allowing yourself to feel the full magnitude of what you lost and who you lost and how much you loved. You lost something, someone you loved rather than some self-diminishing comment, which is so often what we do. So I, I often say that grief is like a broken bone. At first, when the bone breaks, it kills. It's so painful. Then maybe it's reset, or maybe you have surgery, and then maybe you have PT, and you feel fine. But on rainy days, it aches. And it's the same with grief. It doesn't go away. And on rainy days, it will continue to ache, but it won't be that searing pain of when you first lost the person. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I love that analogy with the bone that explains it perfectly. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's not mine. I read that somewhere. Claire, in your experience, does faith and religion play a role in grief? I, my experience is that in a lot of my groups, it's not talked about a lot actually. But I would say that the people who have a strong faith or religion do better 
with making meaning of what's happening than those that don't. Because my, my feeling is that often people who don't have a faith or a practice, I think of it also as a practice or a religion, experience what's happening as random. They have no way of making meaning of it. And people who have a faith or a religion do have a way of making meaning. I, I practice, I was raised Episcopal, I went to seminary, but I practice Buddhism and they're not contrary. But what I love about Buddhism is that it's an invitation to be with what is. And often our suffering is exacerbated by our resistance to being with what is. That when we can be with what is and allow it to be there and be present to it, we can move through it. And it's the same way with grief more easily. Um, but I think to your question, from what I've seen, and I don't have a lot of experience, but I'll say this actually, which might be of interest. When I've run groups at Boston Medical Center, which is um, mostly people of color in, in the poorer areas of the city, there's not a lot of talk about their treatments or their stage of cancer. It's much more of a faith-based group. Um, in other communities, I don't hear that as much. That doesn't surprise you, I'm sure. But I don't have, a, I've only done a couple of groups in the city, so I don't have a lot of experience, but I will say I have noticed that. Do you find that's because there's an outlet for either anger towards um, a religious figure, whether it's God or uh, karma or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, but at the same time, there's comfort in that figure, God, karma, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So people have an outlet for their feelings towards something if, if they have that spiritual belief. I don't hear a lot of anger at God. That's not my experience. I'm not saying it's not there, but it isn't in my experience. Or faith that this is the way things are and that through some kind of theistic approach, I'll be helped through this. And faith, the faith is so sustaining. Claire, I know that when I went through periods um, of extreme grief, I definitely was not myself. I was sleeping too much or not really interested in engaging in conversation like I used to. And to some who might have not known me well enough, they could have just thought that's who I was as a person. But for those closest to me, they realized something was wrong. As someone who works in the space as much as you do, can you help our listeners understand what to recognize and how they can help their family members or friends who may be going through grief but don't know it? Thank you so much for this question because the different ways that grief expresses itself is often a big issue of conflict and contention in families because people don't recognize what other people are doing as grief. So grief does not hold only sorrow and hopelessness and despair. Grief can be expressed as impatience, irritability, anger, rage, um, regret, and even it holds positive emotions like gratitude, relief. Relief is a big one. And people don't understand that. And so one of the things that I'm hoping is that by educating people, there'll be more understanding of one, the differences that are living between one another. I mean, if you look without, I don't want to get 
political. But if you look at some of our political, former political leaders, and you see the amount of anger and rage that they carried, my question inside myself was always, what happened to that person as a child that they act like this? If I go to my most compassionate place, because anger and rage give us a false sense of agency. People think they're strong and, and actually it's often expressed that way because people can't endure the helplessness and the hopelessness and the vulnerability of grief that grief can bring. And that kind of hardening of our hearts doesn't allow us to actually move through the loss. And as I said, you can see it in a couple of former political figures, but th their life must have been horrible to so have to live with that. You mentioned vulnerability. And when I, I've lost all four grandparents now, but I remember the only times I've ever seen my father cry is when he was having to bury one of his parents. And even when he did the eulogy at the service, he held it together because he cried at home, but wouldn't let anyone else see his emotion. Why is there such a difference? Meanwhile, like my mom cries almost all the time. I, you know, it's, it's not, it's like, oh, okay. Um, why is there such a difference between males and females showing vulnerability in society? And how can we start to change that conversation and perception? You know, that's a great question. I, I just want to tell you a little anecdote. I was talking to a woman in South Dakota yesterday whose father just died of COVID and she has two brothers and they told her she was not allowed to write anything about feeling or express any feeling at the service. And she, she didn't want the word COVID written in the obituary. It was too political. But I think part of this is a phenomenon of how we've socialized um, our, the two different genders. I mean, I think that's part of it. But the other thing that on a positive note is that one of the good things, and probably there aren't many, that's emerged from COVID is that the word grief, it's in the New York Times, it's at the Atlantic Monthly, it's on NPR. It's, we're hearing the word grief. And I think because we're hearing it more, it's becoming more legitimate. But the, the different ways that grief is expressed between men and women is very pronounced. I see it in my groups. And often, if you can imagine this, people, I had one man just break down and sob a couple of months ago. And then he was so embarrassed, he didn't want to come back to the group. And I had to sort of talk him off the cliff and say, please, this is, you can't cry in a bereavement group. Where can you cry? But if a man comes into a bereavement group or even a woman and says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm crying. I think what are the cultural messages about grief that people would apologize for grieving in a, a bereavement group after they've lost a spouse or a child or whatever, you know? So I can't answer that question except to say, I think it's socialization, but I think it's changing. It's not changing fast, but it's changing. I think part of it too is the way that guys interact with each other. Are yeah. what? Are the way that, that men interact with each other. I think that's right. Yeah. You know, it's not often that uh, a lot of things of substance are discussed, right? It's, it's text messages, calls, um, discussions sure. about, whether it's sports, music, you know, even political stuff, it's usually, you know, joking. Uh, it, it's almost the, the friendship between men 
is more of a, a fun, it, it's angled towards fun, right? Where an action and activity, yeah. And activity or even just joking around, right? Where, whereas, and I could be wrong about this, but women have a little bit more deeper discussions about what's going on in their lives yeah. and, and how they feel. It's how we're socialized, I think. I think that it comes back to that. Claire, in your experience, once someone has passed, is there a difference in how people grieve based on how they lost that individual? Yeah, I think there's a big difference. So most of my experience has been with people living with cancer. So they there's a lot of anticipatory grief that occurs. There's a lot of planning. There's a lot of closure that can happen. And this is much of the work I do. You know, what's on your bucket list? What's the unfinished relational business you have? Where can we help you close your life with coherence and peace and meaning? When you drop dead or you have a traumatic death, uh, like a car accident, um, that's tough <laughs> because often you leave loose ends behind. Few of us live in a way that our loose ends are closed up on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but yes, and it, I think the shock and the denial are apt to last a lot longer in the face of a, an abrupt death that's not anticipated than in a, a, a grief that's anticipated. I think the other thing that can hugely shape a loss is whether it's a disenfranchised grief or what we call one of the more invisible un unattended losses, Stephen Levine calls it, which I think is a beautiful word. So for instance, if you're having an affair and that person dies, that kind of grief, there's nowhere to go with that. There's nowhere to go. Or the grief of having a mentally ill child. There's no cultural sanctions around a lot of griefs in our society, infertility, miscarriage, people, pet loss, pet loss is a huge one um, for which there's, there's no holding, there's no holding, which actually is, I've gotten a little bit off your question, <laughs> but I think these invisible losses um, are some of the most difficult ones to resolve. Sometimes we have people who are physically still here, but psychologically absent. So dementia, brain injury, there's no cultural ritual for that. Or we have someone who's psychologically here, but physically absent, such as immigration or inmates. I had an inmate, I, um, you know, it, this was an interesting story. I, I, was, I started corresponding with an inmate um, that was assigned to me. And I started corresponding and I thought, this person was a male. And somewhere in the midst of maybe 18 months after corresponding, he told me she was transgender. So I continued to correspond with her. It, she was living in a male prison and we did a lot of advocacy work. And then one morning, and I never met her, but I'd been corresponding with her for three or four years. One morning I got a phone call saying she's dead. She was found dead in her cell. And I wept, I wept for this person who, physically it was absent from me, but psychologically I was carrying. And there was nowhere to take that. You know, half people would say, but you never met the person. But we all have those untended, invisible griefs. And I think part of what, I wouldn't say my mission, but my wish is to bring those untended griefs into the fore. And so that they become 
legitimate griefs that we can share with each other without feeling shame. So I, this actually is reminding me of something else. In my bereavement group, one of the things that I often will hear is like, here's, here's a couple of examples. I sleep with my husband's shirt on because I want to keep the scent of him nearby. And then it's followed by, I wouldn't say this anywhere, but in here, because you'll understand. Or as one person said, I'm sleeping with my dog's favorite toy after her 14 year old dog companion died. And she was so ashamed to say it. And these are the kinds of things that we have to bring out from under the covers because everybody's doing it. You know, when I say in my groups, how many of you are talking to your loved ones who died? I don't say, is anybody? I say, how many of you? Because I embed the assumption that it's happening to normalize it so that people will say, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so these things aren't secrets because the secrets around grief make the grief harder to grieve. You talk That's about way more than you asked for. But. No, this is great. You know, what came to mind when you were talking about that, um, when you were corresponding with uh, the inmate, that we grieve people we've never met, but have maybe impacted our lives. And the first one that really came to mind besides Princess Diana was recently Kobe Bryant. And I would say, I've never met him, never met his family. But for the last year, there's not a day that I haven't thought about his wife or his children mm -hmm. and what her experience losing mm -hmm. someone so public and a child at the same time. And when we knew you were going to come on to the show and talk with us, I kind of wanted to throw in that question of, as a society, when um, like a larger figure passes away, do you see us, do you see people start to grieve like collectively over that loss? Did you kind of see that at all with Kobe or, you know, Princess Di was a really big one as well that comes to mind. That I think, I think there was a collective grief about it, but there wasn't, it wasn't ritualized. I think what Joe Biden did the night before his inauguration to have those candles representing a thousand deaths and to say the healing is in remembering was so important. It was so important. You know, I, I just, I want to say something to you, Mallory, about what you just said about Kobe. I had a woman in my group this week talk about how much someone who had previously been in the group who died she was carrying and how often she thought about her. And she wrote this, this piece about this woman who had died. And I said to her, why don't you send this to her daughter, this piece of writing? And she did. And her daughter was over the top. And now I'm thinking, why don't you write? I, I have actually, I, oh, oh good. Um, you know, his wife on Instagram, I'm sure she'll never see it, but just saying, you know, um, on the anniversary, like you've been in my thoughts and prayers, you know, oh, the strength that not only you've shown your daughters, but other women who have lost children or who have lost a spouse. Um, because I, like you said, there's no right way. And when my friend passed away, watching his mom try to grieve his loss while still having other children, it's a kind of strength that you hope you never have to find or have to, you know, act out to try no, to still yeah. keep going. And so, you know, for any of our listeners who have lost children or spouses or, you know, anyone, 
it's okay to talk about it. You don't have to always be so strong. And I think that's the other aspect is you feel like you have to put the shell on to show strength, but that doesn't give you time to grieve the loss that you're feeling. Well, the sh- what, here's the paradox. The shell is not strength. The strength is in allowing what's there to be there because that's how you'll move through it. If you freeze your heart and inhibit those feelings, you're actually creating stress in your body. People, um, I read this quote yesterday. I think it went something like this, that delight emerges when we share our suffering with one another. And I thought that was so beautiful because when we learn we're not alone, there's something incredibly healing about that. And I, in the book, we talk about find a grief friend, a friend who understands the grief doesn't go away, that understands it's important to cry. Because when you wall it off, that's actually more your inability to be with what is true for you. So it's really not strength. It's something else. I don't want to call it weakness. It might be fear. It might be other things. I don't want to use a derogatory term about it, but it's, it's not strength. Strength is being with what is and allowing it to have its full expression and remembering that our grief is love. So why do we want to tamper that with that? So other than going to bereavement groups or seeing a therapist, well, uh, I do. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, you know, seeking out a friend uh, you know, who might be going through something similar, you talk about going into nature. What, what are some other, uh, can you talk a little bit about your, your thoughts about going into nature and other things that people can do to, to, to yeah. sit with their feelings. So each chapter in the book is a, um, is a different resource for helping the reader hold grief. And one of the things that we loved about what many of the endorsers said about the book was that it felt like a companion. And one of the things we love is that the voice in the book hopefully helps the reader not feel so lonely and to know that other people have walked this path. So the first chapter in the book is called kindness. And we deliberately called it kindness because people are so often at the effect of ideas about how they should grieve or what they were taught about grief, that we wanted to invite people to just be kind towards whatever emerges in their their grief journey. So kindness is an important resource. Another chapter is about cultivating a gratitude practice. And that sounds antithetical, I think, often to people who've just suffered a loss. And it's not about bypassing what's wrong at all, but it's about noticing what's right alongside what's wrong. Because what that will do, that will strengthen your capacity and your resilience to hold your grief and suffering. And that's one of the most important reasons to have a a gratitude practice. Our minds are historically and currently hardwired to notice what's wrong. It's called a negative habituation of the mind. And that's not a bad thing, but it's how we learn to survive as a species. Unfortunately, we still are negatively habituated. So for instance, if you asked the listeners of this podcast, 100 listeners, how this podcast went for me, and 99 of them said it was great. And one person said it was terrible. Where do you think my attention would go? Right? Even knowing this, right? <laughs> so what we suggest in the second chapter is by, by being with 
uh, what's right for zero to, uh, sorry, 10 to 30 seconds, lingering with it when you notice what's right, you can actually begin to rewire the brain because the brain is very, it, 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 as Rick Hansen says, neuroplastic. Unfortunately, when we have a negative experience, it adheres to us like Teflon. It, we don't ever forget the impact of a negative experience. We may forget the details, but we don't forget that it hurt, that we were angry or whatever. Positive experiences tend to flow through us like water over Teflon. We don't remember them in the same way that we remember positive and negative experiences. So by lingering with what's good and making sure to give full expression also to what's wrong, we begin to rewire the brain and we'll be better able to carry our grief, our suffering, whatever we encounter in terms of adversity. So keeping a gratitude journal is one of the practices, one of several practices we suggest in the book. And we have a chapter on nature and restoring in nature and the importance of being outside that when we're in the natural world, our eyes receive what's there. We're not focused on what's there. We are in a receptive mode and the mind and the body and the heart get to relax. And also we see in nature, the cycles of life and death. And it can be promising to see that even, I remember last spring in, uh, when COVID first came out and I would see buds on trees, it brought tears to my eyes that despite how much we've abused our environment, that nature continues to give. It just really moved me. And there's a lot of research about what they call restorative environments. So being in the natural world is another way to help hold um, resource. Do you wanna hear more <laughs> or was that enough? Is that more? So uh, another chapter is on, um, on mindfulness and meditation. So our minds are, 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 the average person can keep their attention on their breath for one to two seconds. 50% of the time, our minds are in the future. 40% of the time, our minds are in the past. And on a very good day, 10% of our minds are where our body actually is. <laughs> and I think when, when we've lost somebody and our whole life has been upended and we're grieving, it's very easy to catastrophize. It's very easy to think my life will never be the same. Oh my God, I'm not going to have the income I had. What am I going to do? I'm going to wind up poor. Oh my God, I'm going to be alone the rest of my, you know, all the thoughts that can tumble in that are really hard to manage. So having a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice where you start to discipline your mind and choose what you're going to allow to enter it and become mindful of it is a really important practice um, just to catch the crazy thinking. There's a great quote that Sylvia Borstein says, which is, don't believe everything you think. And I, I have to remind myself of that a lot. The other thing she says is, our feelings are real, but they're often not true. <laughs> and I like that distinction because it validates how we feel, but it also says, be careful because our feelings aren't facts. And it's so easy to run away with our feelings and think they're facts and they're real and they're true. I mean, they're real, but think they're true too. So that's, that's another chapter in the book. So and then I have a chapter called writing as refuge, which I, because I do a therapeutic writing group, I, I, I love this chapter. I think that there's a lot of research right now that writing for 
three to four times a week for up to six weeks will actually improve your immune system, reduce anxiety and reduce depression. And there's something about describing and organizing and structuring language that helps to structure the trauma of experiences that happen by writing about them. And there's a couple of um, wonderful exercises in the book. One of them is, one of the things I hear a lot in my bereavement group is, I don't ever wanna forget uh, blah, blah, blah about my husband or about my daughter. And I say, you will forget because we all will forget. So one of the practices that we suggest is to sit down and write, I remember and see what comes. And then again, I remember, and just keep using that stem, I remember. Because when you create time to remember, you remember things that you won't remember unless you create time. And so it's a wonderful practice. The, the other thing we do, I, I often suggest people do, is to write unsent letters to their loved ones. You know, today I wanted to tell you about this and write it out. And you know, none of us really know whether or not there's any linking with those who have passed. But I think a lot of people act on faith that there is. And there's a, there's a whole um, body of literature about what they call continuing bonds or remembering conversations. And this is why I always say in my groups, how many of you are talking to your loved ones? How many of you are writing to your loved ones? That it's, it's important to um, normalize these things that everybody's doing, but few people are talking about. I'm sure our listeners will be able to relate to this, but I have found that sometimes after someone loses someone, they're different. And I kind of think about it as a scar. Like you get cut, you get stitches, you know, you're stitched back together. The bleeding has stopped. But even after you get the stitches out and even after years of it not being an issue, the scar is still there. Like you are still changed by that injury. And I think that going through the grief process is similar. Like you're grieving, you realize the person's not coming back. You have to continue moving on and moving forward with your life, but you still carry that with you. The scar is still there and present but maybe just not as noticeable to others as it is to you. Is it normal to lose part of yourself after losing someone so close to you? Does the void of grief ever get smaller or do we just get better at forgetting that it's there, kind of forgetting like that scar is still there? No, you're not the same. Um, but to that, to that image of, of um, the scar, which I like a lot, um, there's a phrase, I, I think it might be Hemingway, I'm not certain, who talks about being strong in the broken places. We develop something in the absence of someone. Actually, let me just say this. Some people's lives open up when someone they love dies because of the nature of the relationship. And I want to acknowledge that. That's is really important. Some people are changed in really beautiful, wonderful ways. They, they get out of something that was terrible for them. So I, I wanna just say that. Um, but when you lost something, something, someone that you've loved, your life is not the same. It will not be the same. 
And it may open up in ways that you cannot begin to imagine until you've walked the walk. And I'm not saying that any chapter in this book will fill that hole, but I am saying that, be, and each chapter is actually based on research, it will help you carry the grief so that the grief transforms your heart and your life in the way it needs to. It will not take your grief away, nor should anything or anybody even try to do that. Claire, the book came out in October of 2020, Opening to Grief. And in the foreword, you talk about New York Times columnist David Brooks mm -hmm. and how he wrote a column. And in the first few days, he received over 5,000 replies to the column. And he had originally expected there was going to be a lot more cheerful stories of coming together during the pandemic. And for our listeners, this column came out in the spring of 2020. And instead, what he got really shocked him, that people were crying a lot. Younger individuals felt a lot of feelings of hopelessness and that their futures had suffered, while the older individuals felt that, especially widows and widowers, felt really lonely. And I think 2020, we've lost, you know, a half a million so far Americans from COVID. I don't know what the numbers look like worldwide. But we also lost time and that getting together and grief can, obviously we experience grief, grief when we really lose someone and we won't get to see them again. But I think that we as a society started to experience grief differently. I know for me personally, I didn't do a graduation from grad school or, you know, we missed birthdays and milestones. Can you talk about how grief started to really come to the centerfold with the pandemic in 2020? Yeah. So when David Brooks wrote that article, he wrote it on April 3rd in the New York Times, and he wrote and asked people how they were doing. And after he wrote the article and described people were crying and lonely and all of that, he says there's a word he uses at the end of the article, which I really love. And he says, it's as if there was just a river of woe, a river of grief. And I love the idea of a river because water seeps everywhere. And this pandemic, uh, it has been not only a pandemic of a horrible disease, but it's a pandemic of grief. And it's been a pandemic of fear. And it's been a, a pandemic of divisiveness because of our politics until lately, although that still seems to be going on. So we've got multiple pandemics, uh, layers of grief on top of grief. But I think we've lost life as we've known it permanently, that something will come back, but we won't be the same. And this actually, we will never be the same having been through this because we've learned something about ourselves, our resilience, what's important. Um, we've developed strengths we may not have known we had before. We've lost things we never imagined we'd lose. And when we return to whatever is gonna be the new normal, it will not be the same. And that doesn't mean it'll be worse. It's gonna be different. Claire, I wanna ask a question for those who may have lost a spouse. Can you talk about what are the difficulties of moving on after losing your partner? And how do you know if you're ready to get into a new relationship? Or how do you even have that conversation with those around you that you are ready to move on? No, 
Let me say, I want to say a couple of things. <laughs> I feel like I could just keep talking and talking. So shut me off <laughs> when I go off. But one of the things that I think is important to talk about is when you lose a spouse of, of say, whatever amount of time you've been together, let's just say 30 years, in the literature, I hate to use this clinical terms, but I don't know how else to use it. It's called the primary loss. You've lost your partner. You've lost a spouse. But what happens is that when you lose your partner, there are a bunch of other losses that co-occur with it, which aren't often, again, culturally sanctioned. And they're, while they're called secondary losses, they're actually often more primary in impact than the loss of the person. So let me explain what I mean. So let's say you lose your wife and your wife was the breadwinner. So all of a sudden, economically, you're unstable. She was a co-parent. All of a sudden, you've lost someone to parent with. She was the person that you always traveled with. You've lost a travel compartment. Perhaps she's the person that walked your dog. Now you have to do that yourself. Perhaps you have to move because you can't afford. So there's, and, and the other thing that happens invariably is that people's friendships shift. People move away that you thought would be there and people show up you never imagined would. And the changing landscape of friendships is really tough. The other night in one of my bereavement groups, somebody said, and she had just lost her partner of 30 years. She said, I, I, I miss him less than I miss the idea and the experience of being in a couple. And I thought, what, is, what a brave thing to say, first of all, in a bereavement group, but there was a lot of agreement too. So there's a loss of identity. That's a big one. There's a loss, loss of the role of being the caregiver if you were in a long-term. So the, the, the losses that accompany the primary are often worse than the loss of the person. And, and people don't realize that. And when I said in the group a few months ago, these are secondary losses, someone said, you mean there's a word for this? That's why I feel so beside myself. It's like the rug is pulled out. So um, one of the things that, there's a letter in one of my books that I had a, a client whose wife died. And before she died, she said to her husband, who was the father of their eight-year-old, I've left a letter for our daughter when I die, and this is where it is. And when he went to get it after his wife died, he found also a letter for himself. And the letter said, I hope you will love again. It would in no way diminish our relationship. You are at your best when you're with another person. And he was the envy of the group because the idea of moving on and starting to date if people haven't had that conversation with their partner before they die, they can feel guilty. They can feel uh, like they shouldn't be, how can they grieve and have joy? You know, I think one of the things about grief is that grief has many feelings that co-occur. So you can have sorrow, you can have relief, you can have gratitude, you can have regret, you can have, you know, it's not one feeling and people tend to think that anything other than sorrow is a betrayal of the person they loved. And it's just not so. So I, I always urge people when they're sick, what are, what is it you want to leave for messages written out, not texted, not emailed, but written out in your handwriting for those you love. And so I do a lot of legacy work with people. 
um, because everybody wants to be remembered. Everybody wants to feel their life made a difference and everybody wants to feel known. And I also often ask people, what words do they want written at their memorial service so that their voice comes into the community? I think I got off the track. A bit. Oh, that's great. And I guess what I would ask you is if, if, you were, um, if you were asked what you want your legacy to be or what you want people uh, to remember you for, what would that be? That my life made a difference in lessening the suffering of others. Like that. Now, where can we find her book? We actually um, partnered with Red Wheel, um, your publisher, and they were so gracious to us and they gave us five copies. So um, we are going to post it on our social media um, on Instagram and listeners can go ahead and read the post, follow us as well as um, opening to grief on Instagram. And if you do, you will be entered in to win one of the copies. The book is called opening to grief, finding your way from loss to peace. So we're excited to be able to give some away to some of our listeners. Oh, nice. That's so nice that they did that. Yeah. We've really uh, learned a lot from this conversation. I, I highly recommend people read your book, sit more with their grief. Uh, and, and hopefully as, as individuals, as society, um, it will be more commonplace uh, for us to discuss our feelings and, and, and what we're all going through. So, so thank you very much for joining us today. We always end with the same three questions. I'll start it off. If you had to pick a quote or a mantra that you feel defines you or that you live your life by, what would that be? That it will never come again is what makes life so sweet. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, what day would that be? Um, I have two days. Uh, can I do two? One is the day I delivered my first daughter, the day I gave birth. And the second one is the day I had a second marriage. I had woken up with a dream that morning that my house was about to collapse and water was pouring into the cellar. And I knew what that dream meant. And I still went through the wedding that day. And I wish I had followed my instinct. So the final question is, um, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into the room, what song would that be? Cool and the Gang's Celebration. Love that song. Love it. <laughs> Great. I'm going to go ahead and add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can go ahead and check it out and hear your theme song featured on that playlist. Well, Claire, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I can speak for my co-hosts as they're nodding along um, on our Zoom call that they did as well. And just thank you for the work you're doing and helping so many people really coming to terms with that end of life and making sure that they're doing it the way they want and with uh, no regrets. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I've loved talking to you all. You had great questions. Thank you.